Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Um, this morning we're in Revelations chapter 21. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and she will be my son, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as, it, as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, five by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, Chrysoprase, the eleventh, Jacinth, the twelfth, Amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the city of the, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God bless the readings of his word. May be seated this morning. What we have in this text is uh, the most thorough, um, detailed description of what we're given in the scriptures to talk about heaven, which is what this whole text is about. Now, when we um, begin to talk about heaven, um, we're sort of entering in a conversation that has a variety of opinions uh, in our world. So if you remember uh, the John Lennon song, Imagine, when he he has the line that says, imagine there's no heaven, imagine if you can, imagine all the people living for today. The, the, uh, the, the mindset of that song is to suggest that actually thinking about heaven and, and aiming for heaven actually makes you absent-minded in this life and uh, makes you uh, unimportant and impractical for our world. It actually leads to, to not unity but strife is the, the sentiment. But, you know, in, in the, the mindset of that, though, there's a, there's a tension that people live with because I think on the one hand... We have a part of our culture that thinks uh, heaven and the afterlife is not good and practical for our life, but also when you get personal, people begin to think differently about it. So uh, even, I mean, Woody Allen, who's famous for his agnosticism, once said, I don't believe in an afterlife, but I am bringing an extra pair of underwear. People begin to question things on a different personal level. And it's fascinating in our culture, on the news, or in movies, or in uh, personal interactions, when something bad happens to somebody. It's incredible how, whether they're agnostic or atheist, um, or even generally, you know, theistic, people will say things like, well, they're in a better place. What do they mean by that? And, and, And where are people getting this from? It's because deep within us, we cannot not ask the questions of the afterlife in heaven. Dallas Willard once said, we think about the future as natural as our breathing. But I want you to know what John has for us in this text is that the natural inclination to think about heaven and the afterlife is not meant to remove you from this world but actually to make you re-engaged in in the most loving, engaged person that this world could possibly have. Because heaven is actually the most practical thing the Bible may give us. Now, remember, John is writing to people who have been suffering, who have been dying for the faith, who have uh, been dealt all sorts of difficult things by the Roman Empire. And he's said these things. He's given us, then I saw a full vision of Jesus. And then he takes us to the throne room, and he shows us that the things of this world are really under control by the people in the throne room. And then he says, this this lamb has answers for the suffering and the problems of this world. And, And then John goes into all of the different perspectives of how evil is present in this world and it is persecuting God's people, how it it is persecuting the Christians for their faith, how uh, the secular culture 
is persecuting it and drawing Christians out of their faith and how there is an evil one who comes directly after people and how there are things in our culture who begin uh, to suck us away in a parasitic way from believing and holding on to the promises of God. All of these things he keeps going through on the difficult journey of the Christian life. And then he comes to this and says, then I saw. For people who have been holding on with a thread, he says, then I saw heaven. And and what it's meant to be is it's meant to be a balm to the soul for suffering people. And heaven offers you, wherever you are in life this morning, three things that can be very practical for your life. Now, it's not a summation of the teaching of heaven, but there's three practical things that we can draw away for our life right now and today, like these suffering people. And that's one, that that this world matters. Two, you're going to be okay. And three, life starts with the ending. First, I'll show you what I mean. This world matters. Now, when most of us talk about heaven or hear heaven, we uh, imagine it as this image of uh, you and I are going to go up to the clouds and uh, to this imaginary place, and, uh, and we'll leave this world. Uh, but the Christian view of heaven is actually not so much that we're going to go up to some place, but actually that heaven is going to come down here. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That heaven in the, in the Bible, it, it's never understood without it being actually deeply connected to this world. So that actually most of the teaching in the Bible is not to do with what happens to you after you die right now and you go be with the Lord. Most of the teaching on heaven from the Bible is, is under the idea of the new heavens and the new earth coming to fully, majestically make everything right here. The Anglican uh, Bishop uh, N.T. Wright, he says it this way. He says, the early church almost never talked about going up to heaven when one died. And if they did, they taught that that heaven was a temporary stop to be with the Lord on the way to the true heaven, the new heavens, and the new earth. See, what, what John has been communicating to us throughout this whole Bible, excuse me, this whole book, is that there is a veil between our experience and the way God is reigning and ruling and redeeming this world right now. And what heaven will be is the removal of that veil so that there will no longer be any, there will no longer be a curtain, there will no longer be anything in between what we are experiencing in the true reign and presence of God. And what John began to see is the curtain pulled back. And there's two sort of dynamics that are true for us right now. And that's one, that the heaven that is coming will be very much like our experience right now, and it will be unlike our experience right now. Look, heaven is coming down here to remake and renew this world, which means a lot of what the heaven will be like will be a lot of what our life is right now. Let me show you. Look in verse 24 of the chapter, it says this, by its light, 
will the nations walk. And it's talking about the Lamb, Jesus being in the center of heaven and being the light that gives life to everything. And then it says the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, the kings of the earth, this is an ancient Near Eastern way of talking about culture and the, the different cultures of this world. Um, kings were single culture shapers. Uh, and at times we've seen in the book of Revelation, and specifically you can go back to chapter 19, that the kings of the earth are actually hostile to the coming of Jesus. And they will gather together to actually throw everything they have at the coming of the king, telling us that there are parts of culture that really detest the true and redeeming God. But there are parts of our culture that God will look at and say, that is beautiful. And I want you to bring that into my new heavens and my new earth. Look, there are some things in our life that we experience, we see, we taste, and we say things like, that was heavenly. You know, or, or that was almost heaven. And you know why we say that? It's because it is. Look, he heaven, in a sense, is going to be very like materialistic, very physical. It's not going to be this like floating-like experience where we, will we be able to figure out who each other are. That, that's all Gnosticism. And one of the things that Christianity in the first century was so aggressively preaching against, that it is not this distinguishing idea from the spiritual and the physical, but it's that the spiritual and the physical are going to be made one in the person of Jesus, and what He promises to bring is a full union one day. And our best understanding of why we know this is just simply what happened to Jesus after He was raised from the dead. Look, when Jesus walked out of the grave, He, he was not this floating, unhuman-like person. He was a man who still had scars. But he was hungry. And he talked. And he slept. But he also walked through walls. We don't even know what that means. But he was a person who people interacted with. And the picture that we were meant to get from the gospel accounts of this is that, friends, this is what a lot of you and I's life is going to look like one day. Because what heaven will do is it will actually take what our life is like now and just make it perfect. But the other dynamic is that heaven will also be a total remake of this world. Let me show you what I mean. Look back in the text in verse 1. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So it's saying there's going to be a complete death to our experience here. And then in verse 4, it says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither mourning nor, nor crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, former things is a fancy theological term. It's just an eschatological idea to say that when the Bible says the old age, uh, or uh, that the present things is talking about uh, the world dominated by sin and darkness. Everything that's tainted from the curse of Eden says it's going to be all. It's going to be gone. 
it's going to be passed away. And then in verse 5, it contrasts that in the same way. It says, behold, God says, I am making all things new. It's, it's, he's saying, look, what's coming is, is going to be so much healing, so much restoration that it's almost going to make this world and our experience unrecognizable. The, the example is given here. It says, and the sea was no more. Now, those of you who like love fishing or sailing, it, like, it's not that there's going to be no water in heaven. That's not what it means. The sea in the, in the ancient Near Eastern texts is a picture of chaos. It's a picture of the untamable, dangerous things of our experience. So actually, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what we're told in the beginning is that there is chaos in the seas. And the first thing that happens in creation is the taming of the chaos. And so what, he, what we're told here is that, listen, in heaven there will be no chaos. Then it says there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning. And then climactically it says in verse 4, and death shall be no more. Look, do you know that, I mean, in 21st century life, the last taboo we have is not any more sexuality. Like, we've so jumped the fence on that. The last taboo we have in society is death. We have no idea how to talk about this. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say to somebody when they've lost somebody. We don't know how to process it. We look for every way to suppress it. And heaven's saying there will be a day when it will be no more. And what heaven will do is it will come, look, into Los Angeles, into Southern California. And in one way, it will actually be just like this. In another way, it will be so renewed and healed, it will be unlike it at all. My hometown is a place called Chattanooga, Tennessee. And in 1984, Time Magazine um, named it, I think, the ugliest city in America. Um, it, was, it, was, it was just coated in pollution. It had a, a lot of uh, nasty parts of the city. And in 1991, uh, Jack Lepton, who owned Coca-Cola, decided to build an aquarium on the north side of the river there. And people were like, what are you doing? Like, why would you ever invest in that city? It's horrible. And he just said, watch. And he put that aquarium there, and then restaurants started to bloom up, and people started to build condos there, and coffee shops, and everything. And in 2015, Chattanooga got ranked as one of the top 20 beautiful, most fun cities to visit in America. And people tell me all the time, like, man, you're from Chattanooga, that's a great place. And I'm always like, I didn't grow up in that part. Like, it was the ugliest city in America when I grew up there. But you go back there, and, and yeah, it's like the same kind of mountains and the rivers, and I, I recognize the roads, but it's also totally unrecognizable. And that's a dinky little city in our experience. Heaven's going to do more than that to this whole world. And what that means is that this world matters. Look, what you do with your life and what you do with this city means something. 
Because whatever you begin to heal and get after renewing, do you, do you know it, it may be a part of a world to come for forever? Like there, there are things that you can serve and heal and clean up and give your life to that Jesus may look at and say, bring that in. And you may start something and he'll say, I fin- I'll finish it. When my kids were little, you know, it, was, uh, it would be like Mother's Day you know, or Christmas or her birthday. And I, I would tell them, hey, Mommy, you know, get something for Mommy. And, 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 you know, when they're really little, they usually, like, find, like, a pencil in the house and just kind of wrap it up in paper and give it to you and say, I made this for Mommy. And, and you know, it, it, and you, as a dad, you just take it and you don't say, this is terrible. You, you take it and you say, I'll finish that. Like, I'll, I'll actually wrap it up for you and I'll put it together. Whatever efforts you make to renew this world, you know, Jesus is not going to look at it and go, come on. He, he may take what you've done like a father takes a child's gift and just say, I'll finish that and I'll make it perfect. And you've got to start living your life this way now because this world matters. And Jesus wants you to believe that living as a Christian means that you're going to help begin to bring the new heavens and new earth now. Second implication, you're going to be okay. Look, we think about our futures, but we typically think about them with so much anxiety, right? We begin to think almost pessimistically nervous about new environments, like will I be ready? Will people like me? Uh, Will I make the right decision? Will I know what to do? And part of what we're worried about is tied up in aiming at this world that we are sure that the major questions that we have in our life, that the future of this world can promise us something and answer them in the right way. But this world will never promise you and give you what you need to be okay in this world, but heaven does. Look, the fundamental questions of your life, if you and I were to think them out, are who are you, where are you going, and what's your purpose? Who loves me? And you and I are constantly putting the burden on this world to answer those questions, but it never, ever has answers for us. And heaven will. And let me show you from the text. Now, when you read this at the beginning, we're sort of given three characters. We're given God, the bride, and the city. And what it seems like is happening is that there's a bride, there is God the spouse, and the city is the place where the bride will dwell. That's typically how this text is read, but that's actually not true. Because what we're told in this text is that the bride that is going to be given to God is the city. Look what he says in verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God. So the city is coming down, and what is the city? It's prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then in verse 9, when it says, Then one of the same angels came, who had the seven bowls and the seven last plagues, spoke to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he says, I'm going to show you this bride who's going to be married to the living God. And in the next verse, and he carried me away in the spirit and showed me, what did he show me? The holy city of Jerusalem. So all of these descriptions uh, of, these, of this city-like stuff, remember this is um, apocalyptic imagery. Look, it's, it's not describing um, sort of the dimensions of heaven. It's describing what you will be like and what will happen to you when you get there. You know what it tells you? And it tells you, A, you're going to be beautiful. Verse 11 says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, this language shows up in Revelation 4 around the throne. As the jewels that are around the throne to adorn the glory and the majesty of the one sitting on the throne. And it says, in heaven, you know what? Those jewels also will be adorned on you. And then in verse 18, it says this, uh, the wall was built with jasper while a city was pure gold like glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then we're given 12 jewels that are listed there. And those 12 jewels, what they are, they're actually the jewels that were listed on the Old Testament ephod. That was a breastplate that the priest would wear when he would go into the presence of God in order to be acceptable in his sight and be able to do sacrifices on behalf of people. And so what this is saying is that when you walk into heaven, the acceptable measures that were required for, for the priest to stand before God and be totally acceptable and loved and adorned, be able to say anything in his sight, will be given to everyone who believes. And what, what this means is that you will get into you will never, ever, ever have a moment where you wonder if you're accepted again. You will never have a moment where you look in the mirror and wonder if you're likable. You will never, ever, ever question your appearance before anybody. It will be total freedom because all of the requirements and all the things that you think that you can find in this world that will finally make you beautiful will be fully given to you in that moment. And you will be so accepted and right in God's sight that it will set you free amongst every creature in the universe to be content. But it also says that you'll be secure Look in verse 16 and 17. It says this, the city lies four square. So he begins to describe this is a what we're given is a square. Its length is the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Now, I know this is a little bit confusing because he's, he's describing a city in statistics, but he's also, the city is the bride. He says its length and width and height are equal. So he was saying it's a square, but now he's saying length, height, and width. That's actually dimensions for a cube. And he says they're equal. Now, everybody who would have read this in the ancient Near East would have thought immediately of one thing. 
where we're told about a cube in the Bible is in the description of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And the dimensions given to this says are 12,000. And it's not a coincidence. Before that, it says the 12, uh, in verse 14, the 12 apostles are the 12 names. And then before that, 12 foundations. 12 foundations would have been the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And all of this number 12 is consistently out of the Bible to tell you this, that listen, when you get into heaven, you are going to be ushered in to an immense secure people who will no longer be people tempted to gossip about you, tempted to stab you in the back, tempted to hurt you with vulnerable things, tempted to fail your trust. You're going to be given a community that will never fail you and will love you from the top to the bottom of your soul and will encourage you, uphold you, sustain you at perfect people forever and ever and ever. You will never be alone. Those of you who struggle with loneliness, who struggle with lacks of, a lack of friendship, you will never experience this in heaven. Because the people that you're ushered into relationship with, listen, they are in the holy of holies. They are in the one place where human beings were never allowed to go. This is how perfect these people will be. And you will be ushered into the 144,000 of them. A countless number of people of all tribes, of all tongues, of all nations who will love you and be eternal friends with you. But it also says you'll be creative. Look, there are hints of this in the text. But we're told something that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he says that when we begin to be redeemed and renewed, we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, we could spend a whole morning on that. But if you get back to Revelation, in this text, we're told that uh, God himself, in verse 22, will be the temple. Now, what's fascinating about that is if you read the New Testament, there are many times where it says that you and I are the temple. That in our dwelling, in our place, when we gather together, we are the temple of the living God and God's spirit dwells within us. But then it says in heaven, God himself will be the temple. And it's, what it's saying is that you and I, when we get into heaven, there's going to be this marriage and this union between us and God to the point that we actually partake in His personhood and we become like Him and we imitate Him and we begin to do things like Him. And you know, one of the coolest things that you and I are going to begin to do that's just like Him and partaking in that is what it says in verse 5, behold, I am making all things new. And the text says, it says, I will make all new things says, I'm making all things new, which means in heaven, there's going to be a creative aspect and a creativity and an ongoing 
recreation of this world that God will fundamentally turn and begin when He brings the marriage together. And then forever, we're going to be imitating Him and just creating wonderful things. Anthony Hokuma, um, the systematic theologian from Calvin College, had an article in Christianity Today about 15 years ago called A Heaven, Not Just an Eternal Day Off. And he said this, in the beginning, man was given the so-called cultural mandate, the command to rule over the earth and to develop a God-glorifying culture. Because of man's fall into sin, the cultural mandate has never carried out the way God intended it. Only on the new heavens and new earth will it be perfectly and sinlessly fulfilled. Only then shall we be able to rule the earth properly. The possibilities that now arise before us could boggle the mind. Listen to this. Will there be a a better Beethoven on the new earth? Shall we see better Rembrandts? Better Raphaels? Better Constables? Shall we read better poetry? Better drama? Better prose? Better literature? Will scientists continue to advance in technological achievement? Will geologists continue to dig out the treasures of the earth? Will architects continue to build imposing and attractive structures? Will there be exciting new adventures in space travel? We don't know. But we do know that human dominion over nature will then be perfect. Our culture will glorify God in ways that surpassed even our most fantastic dreams. Look, you're going to be, give, be given creative tasks without boredom or deadlines. No more stress. No more exhaustion to do it just to get it done. Just to do it to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, here's why this is important for you today. Because there are a lot of people who turn to Christianity during times of stress and pain. And what happens is we turn to Christ in times of stress and pain in hopes that He will fix our stress and pain. And look, make no mistake, our task of the church is to enter into people's pain and to offer the healing and hope of the gospel. But the heart of the Christian faith is a future promise of not your life being fixed here and now, but of one day all things being fixed. And actually, some of the suffering and hardship that you go through that Jesus won't take away is actually meant to drive you deeper into Him and long more for this to come. And you you, you have to know, and you have to tell people that what Christianity offers you is not an immediate fix now, here in this moment, but offers a hope to come of one day there being no more questions asked and no more things to be fixed. And if you can hold on to that now, I mean, Teresa of Avila, she said, even the worst life will feel like in heaven one inconvenient night in a bad hotel. And it's telling you the hope of heaven, you're going to be 
okay. Look, heaven promises you that this world matters, you're going to be okay, and life starts with the ending. What is all of this about? Verse 3, it just tells us. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them as their God. Look, the whole essence of heaven is that God will finally dwell with us and fully be with us forever. In verse 22, it says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gets its light. Now, it says there's no temple and there's no sun or moon. What in the world? Now, what's fascinating about this is that the center of Israel is the temple. In the beginning of creation, the first thing that's created is the, the light for the darkness, or excuse me, the separation of the light and the darkness, and then we're given the, the sun to rule over the light and the darkness to rule over the moon. So you have the beginnings and the important foundational things of creation won't exist. And then the center of Israel won't exist. And what we're just told here is that the most central foundational things in this universe and the most important things that we think in our life are nothing but previews of life to come. Look, heaven, as C.S. Lewis puts it, it, it will be the loud chorus to all of the whispers you ever heard in your life. It will be the full show to all the previews. Everything in your life is aiming for this. The reason you want meaning, the reason you want relationships, the reason you want beauty, the reason you want understanding, you know what it's all leading to? They're all roads to the same final sentence. God will be there. Jonathan Edwards, in his essay, The End for Which God Created the World, said this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our purpose. It is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. It's better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And the way that you begin to live life here and now is to know that's the ending and to start with it. Look, all of of the suffering and hardships in your life, you ought to be able to look into them now the way you wish you could go back to your kindergarten self and tell them, "It's, it's going to be fine. What you think is significant and important 
is actually just a stepping stone and a learning lesson for later on in life. Don't you realize you're gonna, your eternal self will be able to say that about every aspect of your life now? Because it's all going to something. And John has been giving you something in Revelation. He's been giving you perspective now from unforeseen realities in the present, but he, right now he's giving you perspective now from unforeseen realities of the future to come. Some, you know, it's been said before, I don't know the future, but I know the one who holds it. That's not true. You do know the future. You do know exactly what this is going to be. And if you want wisdom to figure out how to parent your children, how to go into your job, how to know what to do with your resources, how to know where to cast your lots in this world, start with the ending. David Wilcox is this um, uh, folk artist who's got a, um, a song where he says, you know, most of our relationships, and he, he, he sort of wrote it for his wife. He says, most of like our, our, our intimate relationships have too many fake moments where we're afraid to say what we want to say, we're afraid to get it off our chest, we're afraid to admit these things. And the reason we're afraid to do that is we're, af we're afraid that if I say this, they'll leave me. I'm afraid if I play this card um, or if I let her tell me this part about me, that will break up. And almost all of us dated our spouses this way, where we're just like, I'm not going to let them see the full me, because if I do, there's no way this is going forward. So we just sort of play the game. And he says, you know, but the more you play the game, the more it just kind of robs you of, of the freedom of intimacy and authentic human relationships. And so he says, you know what the best counsel is, is uh, to just break up. If you, and your, if you and your spouse, you just break up, you know what that means? You're not afraid of breaking up and you can actually talk. He's joking. He's not encouraging you to, to break up. But he goes on to say this. The best way to do a relationship, and maybe to do all of life, is to start with the ending. His chorus says this. Now there's no pretending. Then the truth is safe to say. Start with the ending. Get it out of the way. Now there's no defending because no one has to win. Start with the ending. It's the best way to begin. The gospel of Jesus Christ descended into hell and lost the Father so that heaven could be given to you and you can be called a son. It's all you need. And if you know it's coming, it's the best way to begin life now. It's once said that we have two lives, and the second one begins when you know you have one. Live it wisely and start it with the ending. It's the amazing counsel of heaven. Let me pray. Father, Look, these gifts of heaven, they can meet us in our suffering now. They can meet us in our boredom.
Look for everyone here. Lord, would the veil be moved a little bit more that we could see the glory of what is to come and let it invade our lives and what we're doing and what we're thinking about and in casting our emotions into in this world. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be a community of people who live for heaven and bear the light. Lord, not, not to cast our lots in this world and fight unnecessary battles here, but Lord, to with open hands long and wait for the world to come. Help us by your Holy Spirit to be empowered to live for that mission. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.